Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Kamelski talk about how to shoe pack, Russian diamond sanctions, and Grand Seiko. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How you doing? Okay? Hi, Rob. Yeah, I'm doing okay. We, we've got some really sad news to start today's yeah. episode with. You know, as I say, every every time I introduce myself, I say I'm editor-in-chief of JCK. And in my head, I can't help but think of all the predecessors that came before me because this magazine has kind of been blessed with editors who stick around. And uh, for those of you who knew Hedda Shupak, she was my immediate predecessor, the wonderfully talented, extremely respected, well-regarded editor of JCK from 2000 to 2009 and, and a longtime editor at the magazine before she became editor-in-chief. And she passed away just yesterday, which was Tuesday, October 3rd. And I know, Rob, you you knew her for many more years than I did because you worked so closely. So please tell us, how did, how did you hear and, and what? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd heard of kind of uh, Russ Shore told somebody who uh, I eventually called Russ, and Russ was also an editor at JCK for a long time, and I worked with him for a little bit, and I, I, I believe you worked with him at some point. Russ was my original mentor in this industry. He'd left JCK and had gone to work for a startup called GemKey.com, and I was brand new to the industry, and he'd hired me to be the Pearl and Watch editor at GemKey, and uh, this was before he went on to work as a senior diamond industry analyst at GIA, but for all those years, from his time at JCK through GemKey through to GIA and into retirement, he was such a dear dear friend of Hedda's. They were so close and were constantly hanging out at trade shows and having dinners together. And I felt like whenever Russ was, you know, nearby, Hedda wasn't too far. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions because I didn't know this was coming. I think most people didn't know this was coming. I think only a small group of people knew this was coming. And I think a lot of us feel, you know, a little we're just very shocked and, and blindsided by the news. But according to Russ, um, she had had cancer. She, I think he told me, and again, I, you know, he told me all this and I, my head was very, was kind of swimming at the time. But uh, so it's, I'm hoping I get it all correct. She had cancer like three years ago, lung cancer, and they removed it and they did chemo and they did all the things that they needed to do. And she was in remission and, uh, then he said last year at JCK, she got a bronchial infection. She had all sorts of breathing problems. And eventually they figured out that the cancer had returned. And it just unfortunately uh, happened very quickly. It was just very unexpected for people who knew her. And I, you know, cancer is, is very, unfortunately, very vicious and, and unpredictable. So, and she was 62, which is pretty so young. young. So, yeah, so definitely young. young. I think all the comments that you've seen on social media, so many people knew her and so many people had very similar experiences to like I had with her and respected her and liked her. And, you know, I think that's testament to a life well lived. It's just very unfortunate that she had to go so early because and in, in retrospect, 
she retired last year or semi, she said she semi-retired last year. And that was not a very Hedda thing to do because she loved her work so much. And I guess that must have been due to have having dealt with some health challenges. So it's a huge loss, I think, to everyone who knew her and just very shocking. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw her in June um, in Las Vegas and she looked great. She she didn't, yeah. she looked quite healthy. Obviously nothing at all. I mean, there was no moment where I had to stop and think, oh, is Hedda seems a little off. She was very much her kind of wry self, you know, she's yeah, very, her very wry personality and I'm happy to have seen her because I don't, I hadn't seen her for a long time before then. And, um, you know, my dad passed from lung cancer, so I do know how aggressive that particular type of cancer is. And it's uh, just, my heart goes out to her family and her husband and all her friends. And you're right, there's been a, a tremendous outpouring of love and support and just recollections about her. I went to Botswana with her way back in 2004. It was really one of those spectacular trips. I've talked about it before because I visited Botswana again just this past May, but that first trip, I was representing Couture International Jeweler at the time, sort of a spinoff of National Jeweler Magazine. And of course, Hedda was with JCK and she was, again, just this this figure. She'd, you know, I was pretty impressed because I was pretty new to traveling on this level and to new to the world of jewelry. And she'd clearly been doing it for maybe 15, 20 years. Do you know what year she joined JCK? I believe it was uh, 1986. It was It was in the 80s. Okay, so this was a good tw- almost 20 years from her start in the industry, and she really lived life to her fullest. And I, I've gotten a lot of comments myself, just people texting me saying, I can't believe it. There is a, a great deal of shock around the passing of somebody who was su- such a force in so many ways, such a force of, you know, in the industry. And she had, you know, a lot of convictions, and those came across in her writing and the way she spoke. She was not somebody to be messed with. She was extremely smart, <laughs> extremely um, insightful, and uh, yes, and, and at the same time, very warm and uh, very nice and very kind person. And you know, you always felt that she had your back as an editor. And she she managed a staff. I think it was about fifteen people or fourteen people. And she dealt with a lot of stuff. I mean, she dealt with different changes in on the corporate level. And there was a move from Pennsylvania to New York. And she just dealt with a lot of stuff. And she handled it very well. And, you know, managing a staff of 15 uh, is not easy. I mean, you know, there was a lot of people there that saw things in very different ways. And there was people in New York and people from Pennsylvania. But I think if anything united us was our faith in in Hedda and uh, the fact that we all admired her and respected her and were loyal to her. And she was extremely loyal to the people on her team. And, uh, you know, I I really, I respected her a lot and, you know, I'm, I considered her a friend even after we stopped working together and I'm, she was at my wedding and uh, I, wow. I just, you know, I'm just very sad to, to hear this. Can I read some of the comments that we've gotten? Because I think... Yes. Yes, please. By all means. Jacques Voorhees, a man who started Polygon, it's what he wrote on my Facebook page. Uh, totally shocked. And at first, I didn't think I was reading the words on the page correctly. Hedda, how is this possible? I remember the first time I met her, her promo pic in JCK always struck me as quite intimidating. And for some reason, I classified her as a kind of cold, aloof, and austere woman. When I finally met her, I couldn't believe she was all smiling and warm and friendly. Who knew? Well, anyone who ever met Hedda knew. I was glad to be one of them. R.I.P. 
And here's something from Trace Shelton, who I think he's the editor of InStore or mm-hmm. one of the editors of InStore. Yep. I am stunned and saddened by this news. Hedda was an icon in this industry for good reason. I always loved her writing, so direct, so smart, so insightful. But more than that, she was a lovely person and believed in making the world a better place. I've been so inspired by her and will miss her tremendously. And uh, here's something from Jennifer Hebner, who we both work with. Keta gave everyone an opportunity to learn, innovate, and a chance to find their own niche within the jewelry business. She led by example, gracefully handled every difficult situation she encountered, and fiercely protected her staff, particularly when JCK moved from King of Prussia to New York in 2005, and she negotiated a commuting deal for the editors. She earned the respect of virtually every person she interacted with in the industry. She was a larger-in-life figure and mentor to other women, was humble to the core. Her smile lit up every room, and she seemed to never age. <laughs> she endured herself to many with her love of cats and made others laugh about her intense dislike for cilantro. <laughs> Hedda will remain a one-of-a-kind industry treasure. Oh, that's lovely. That's yeah, very nice. All three of those are really lovely comments and, and very, very on point. Oh, it's with a heavy heart that we discuss all this. This is yeah, yeah. This is hard to hard to process. Well, thank you for tracking down all the comments and for putting up a piece on on the website so quickly. I think um, yeah, a lot of people are are just learning this news, and I'm glad they can learn it through us because we shared a lot of those great comments that people had about Hedda. Anyway, rest in power, our friend. Rest in power. Yeah. When we did our 150th anniversary podcast, we went back and spoke to a lot of the old editors about their memories of JCK, and here was what Hedda submitted. Hello, Rob, and hello to all the JCK podcast listeners, and happy 150th anniversary to JCK. This is Hedda Schupack here. I joined JCK in January 1986, and I was there till May 2009. So Rob asked, how did I land at JCK? Not a terribly interesting story. It was entirely by chance. I don't come from a jewelry family or even a family that quote unquote knows somebody in the diamond business. In fact, now I'm the one that the family knows in the diamond business. I answered an ad in the newspaper. Yes, I'm dating myself. In those days, you actually did crack open a physical newspaper, took a red pen and circled the want ads in the classified section. At the time, JCK was owned by Chilton Company, which was a very well-regarded publishing company in Radnor, Pennsylvania. I had been working for about a year at another area publishing company, which was my first job after graduating college with an English degree. I was ready for a change, both to expand my skills and hopefully to have a shorter commute than schlepping to the other end of Philadelphia from where I lived. Chilton was advertising for an assistant production editor, but the ad didn't specify what magazine it was for. I got the interview and the position turned out to be on JCK. It was the junior most editorial position on the magazine and then editor-in-chief George Holmes hired me for it. Over the years, I worked my way up to fashion editor, then editor of JCK's new luxury and trends magazines, which were subtitles under the main publication, and finally to becoming editor-in-chief of the whole JCK publishing group in 2000. I was there about 23 and a half years in total, leaving in May 2009 and joining Howard Hobbin and Centurion not long after that. So what was the best thing I covered at JCK? Um, What was my favorite story? Rob asked both. So being an editor, let's clarify, there's a story as in one you write, and then there's a story as in one you tell. 
So in terms of issues that I covered as an editor, my favorites always were the ones that focused on consumer behavior, fashion, trends, merchandising, etc. I had minored in fashion design in college, so that was always an interest. I can't draw, which is why I'm not a fashion designer, but since I could write well, one of my professors suggested that I enter the industry that way. Uh, years ago, also, Russ Shore and I won a Neil for a story about store design, as interior design also fascinated me. But I always was, and I continue to be passionate about the importance of selling jewelry to women. And if I may pat myself on the back for a moment, if you go back and read any of my old editorials from the early aughts, or even before that, you'll see that everything we as an industry are dealing with now was in those editorials. So now my favorite story to tell. There are so many. But one of the best probably has to be around the launch of the JCK show, initially called Jewelry 92. The first was Jewelry 92, obviously it was in 1992, then Jewelry 93, Jewelry 94, and we suddenly realized we were buying new banners and new carpets every year, and that was pretty silly. That's when it became the JCK show. I digress. So we had decided to launch a show, but we still hadn't figured out where. Now, during an editorial meeting, George Holmes was bringing the editorial team up to speed, and he told us that Las Vegas was the leading contender for location. Las Vegas, I said. We can't have a show in Las Vegas. There's no jewelry industry there. There's no jewelry industry in Basel, Switzerland either, replied George in his droll manner. Any of you who remember him can probably imagine him saying that. Touché. So fast forward to the first Las Vegas show, Jewelry 92, where the University of Nevada at Las Vegas marching band opened the ceremonies on the first day. What they chose to play was John Philip Sousa's Liberty Bell March better known to the world as the Monty Python theme song. If you ever cr come across the video of that day, which is available on VHS, you will hear the Monty Python raspberry blown at the appropriate moment, courtesy of Rush Shore and me standing behind the ceremonial red ribbon with the rest of the JCK staff. So how did my time at JCK shape me as a reporter and editor? I can't emphasize enough what great mentors I had in George and Debbie Holmes. George was a true old-school journalist, an objective observer that tells the entire story from all sides, and he taught me everything that I know in that regard. My degree was in English. It wasn't in journalism, so I really relied on George's uh, mentoring and instruction to fill in the parts of my education that I hadn't had in college. And he always used to emphasize, you're telling the story, the whole story. You're not part of the story, he would say. But over time, the industry shifted, and JCK's role, and indeed even the entire trade press role, shifted with it. Even George came to acknowledge that the editors, especially those of us with decades-long tenure, in fact were able to speak as experts from a position of authority and not just as observers. When I became editor-in-chief, and Frank Dallahan was publisher at the time, we came up with the tagline, The Industry Authority. Our editorial perspective shifted slightly to be able to speak from a position of experts as well as observers. But what never changed, and never should change, is to remain objective, even as an expert, or more importantly, especially as an expert. So my concluding thoughts about the industry in general, I believe the changes we've seen already in this century are very likely just the tip of the iceberg. Yes. It's very, very scary to think that we have so much more to go. 
I do personally believe consumers will always want to adorn themselves and express themselves and that they will always value precious metal and gems as a way to do it. But how they go about doing it, that's still changing and that has a very long way to go. So thank you very much and again, happy 150th to JCK and hopefully someone will be recording something 150 years from now. In, I, I guess, more traditional industry news or more less, less certainly less tragic industry news, um, no. but also mm -hmm. more, well, I guess there's an element of tragedy in all this news. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell us about the latest with Russian sanctions and diamonds in the pipeline and what American diamond buyers should know. So it's really hard to get a read on where the sanction conversation is. It, it seems to be something that... that pops up in the news every few months or so and then dies down a bit. And I know a lot of the people from the G7 and the State Department were, were recently in India talking to people in the industry there, because that's obviously one of the big choke points for Russian goods. It's pretty clear that sanctions are coming and that people want uh, sanctions. And, um, you know, diamonds are not a huge foreign currency earner for Russia. I mean, they earn $4 billion, I believe, a year or $4.6 and Russian exports are about $600 billion. So we're talking about probably less than 1%. But certainly from a PR standpoint, from a moral standpoint of people not wanting to, to fund what's going on in Ukraine, and, you know, a billion dollars is a, is a billion dollars, people are going to want to do this. So the only question is, how is it going to be done? Now, I attended this event which was at the Belgian consulate's house recently, and the Belgian prime minister was there. And I had a, a very short interview with the Belgian prime minister. I believe that's the first head of state I've mm. I've interviewed. Yes, it was only two sentences, but he <laughs> he was in fact a sitting head of state. I I've talked to former Botswana heads of state, but not as far as active sitting head of state. I believe this gentleman was it and it was not the world's longest interview. But clearly, Belgian had a lot of bad PR about blocking Russian diamonds. And now they're out in the forefront of this effort, making it very clear that they want Russian diamonds banned from G7 nations. And, and we should note that currently under the current rules, you know, American citizens are not allowed to deal with Arosa, which is the big Russian diamond miner, as well as Grib Diamond, which is the, the smaller Russian diamond miner. However, there's a, there's a loophole so if the Russian rough diamonds go into India and are polished there, for the time being at least, until the G7 probably changes this rule, Russian diamonds are allowed in the country. That's probably going to change about in January. And again, the, the big question is how do you enforce something like this? Because it's not easy and it's not easy to track diamonds. So there's been dueling plans from the World Diamond Council and from the Belgian government, which may or may not be acting on behalf of the G7. It's going to be a, a big issue, and uh, I do think the G7 wants something muscular and strong just to send a signal, and the industry is going to have to gear up for it. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds' mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural, untreated diamonds. 
The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond chairs with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. You know, the industry is in pretty bad shape right now, and certainly the natural diamond business is not in great shape right now. And ordinarily, you have these few months without any real import hassles. I mean, you would think that people would stock up and they haven't been stocking up. And I think that's either a reflection of, first of all, how bad the industry is doing right now and how kind of worried everybody is. But also, I think it's a sense that either people are in denial or they don't think these sanctions are going to be a big hassle. And again, it's not very clear where the G7 is going to land on this. And they're playing things close to their vest. There seems to be issues with the WSDC plan, but also a lot of people have looked at the Antwerp plan and and said, you know, this is, it, it has, it envisions too big a role for Antwerp. And from a logistical standpoint, doesn't necessarily make sense because you would have to get the rough and then import it into Antwerp and then get it cut in India and then get it sent back to Antwerp again. So a lot of people aren't happy about that. So it depends where it all lands. And- you know, back up for a second, because I really didn't realize the industry was in such a terrible place. What are your sources for that? Or where are you hearing this? The last time I'd sort of heard of check-in about the state of the business, you know, things had slowed from January until maybe April, but then it seemed like things were kind of stabilizing a bit. What's your sense of the overall marketplace? So India just announced that it's it wants to cease all hope rough imports for the next two months. That's a pretty strong statement that people feel overloaded. And I think the big complaint I hear is that there's too much inventory in the pipeline and prices have been falling and the amount of inventory is not necessarily met by demand. And we're talking and people, specifically or exclusively about diamond inventory. Diamond inventory. Yeah. Yeah. It's very particular to diamonds because people feel that lab-grown diamonds have taken a bigger share of the market. And during the pandemic, when the market was much bigger, both natural diamonds could do well and lab-grown diamonds could do well. Now we're gone back to a shrinking market and natural diamonds are struggling. And frankly, lab-grown diamonds have their issues too. It's just that uh, when, when it happens to natural diamonds, especially prices going down, it's much more uncommon and a much bigger deal. And it's, it, it's certainly possible that the uh, Rosa situation has had an impact on natural diamond prices, especially if they're selling for cheap and cutting their own margins and stuff like that. It's It's been a tough couple months and a lot of people see this as a, as a crisis and people can disagree with this or agree with this, but I don't think the situation in the United States is that terrible. I've certainly seen worse economies, but people are getting a little nervous and any kind of dip in demand always leads to a ripple effect. So it has kind of an outsized effect on the, on the cutting centers. Yeah. Gosh, I didn't realize that about India. And I do wonder what role China plays in all this or, you know, Chinese demand. On a sort of tangential note, I am working on a Pearl-themed special report and recently spoke to uh, Sunny Sethi from Tara Pearls, which is, of course, a high-end pearl jeweler supplier. And was stunned to hear about the pearl market and the incredible surge in prices 
an incredible decline in availability of goods as a result of demand spiking in China. This is for primarily South Sea, Akoya, and Tahitian goods. I guess an influencer in China wore and promoted Tahitian pearls in a several Instagram posts and people were buying entire lots, entire auctions at the recent Hong Kong show in September. So it's interesting to see these parallel markets. Of course, pearls much smaller than diamonds, but you do wonder what role China, which has had a very public reckoning with its own economy and its own struggles there in terms of real estate and obviously a lot of unemployment and just issues with Chinese growth. And so what does that mean for their demand of diamonds? And then how does that then affect the Indian cutting industry, which in turn then affects what goods we're getting here? So yeah, it is all interconnected and and I can see how things ripple out. But I suppose we'll have to wait and see. I hadn't really checked in, you know, that deeply with people about jewelers, that is, with with how they were feeling about the, the holiday American jewelers and retailers. But my sense wasn't that things were terrible. I guess it's just maybe compared to the, the high highs of 21 and 22, things might be coming back to a, a point of just reality, which is you know, quite fair. And everybody should be hopefully prepared for that since we can't be on an epic high every year. But... Yeah, the diamond the diamond trade. Well, we'll see what De Beers has in store. They always do seem to be working on something to help zhuzh up demand. Yeah, and I, I think from what I hear, demand in China is also having issues. Uh, but there are, is talk, and I would call it a credible uh, talk, that Arosa is considering advertising in China or plans to advertise in China because it obviously can't do it in the United States. So mm-hmm. that might help the market over there and the market overall. On a happier note, I know you just came back from Japan. Yes. And you want to tell us all about it. What you see, what you do, what you eat, <laughs> so what you visit. How long do we have? Um, yes, I'll, I'll set it up. I was invited to join a press trip with Grand Seiko, which is the luxury sibling brand to Seiko. Everybody knows Seiko. It's been around since as a company since 1881, founded in Tokyo by Mr. Hattori. And the, gosh, I want to say it's the fourth or fifth generation still resides there in the chief executives or chairman's office in Tokyo in the Ginza district where Seiko has its uh, executive offices. And Grand Seiko was founded in 1960 as kind of the most superlative version of Seiko. It was meant to be the most precise, the most luxurious, the most, uh, you know, the most legible, the easiest to read. There were a lot of functional concerns that were addressed with Grand Seiko when they made their very first model. And it built up quite a following. It was only available in the Japanese market till 2010. But it did, again, build up this real cult following. In 2017, um, the Seiko Group Corporation spun off Grand Seiko as its very own brand, so no longer kind of a product line under Seiko, but its very own mark. And again, it continued to gather this kind of cult following in the Americas, in Europe, and of course in Asia. And it is really a remarkable company. And so this press trip, they've been doing it for many years now because they have several facilities in Japan. They're based in Tokyo, but they have a production facility in Nagano Prefecture, which is, of course, people remember from the 1998 Winter Olympics. Uh, There's a town, Matsumoto is one of the main cities there where we stayed for a night and we went to visit the Shinshu Watch Studio nearby where uh, Grand Seiko produces its spring drive technology, which is a kind of a quartz-powered mechanical technology that, you know, really was pioneered by the Japanese. 
the highlight of the visit was a visit to Morioka or the town of Morioka, which is about two hours north of Tokyo on the Shinkansen, the bullet train. We're all still on the main island of Honshu, but this is Morioka's in the north. And just about 30 minutes west of Morioka is a little town called Shizukuishi. And the name translates as water trickling on stone, just so beautifully Japanese. And um, that's where Grand Seiko has another facility called Morioka Seiko Instruments. But in 2020, they opened this beautiful studio space, about a little over 21,000 square feet, called Grand Seiko Studio Shizukuishi. And it's where all of Grand Seiko's mechanical timepieces are produced. Um, it was designed by this Japanese architect, Kengo Kuma, who uh, did work, I think, on uh, the stadium for the Olympics in Tokyo and is a real celebrated you know, star architect. And this space has just all the properties that and the qualities you associate with Japanese design, a, a great respect for minimalism, you know, natural woods, and, and a real sense of the natural environment that's located around the studio and the value it has, I guess, in the time and how it's kind of how the timepieces that are made there reflect that. So one of the biggest uh, natural landmarks around in this area of near Shizukuishi is called Mount Iwate. It's a peak, a little over 6,000 feet, and it's generally visible from the windows of this gorgeous studio space. It wasn't on the day we visited because rain clouds had covered it, but it's a real metaphorical presence in the studio because the peak itself inspires the dial patterns that appear on these mechanical timepieces. There's literally a Mount Iwate pattern that's designed to evoke the contours of the mountain. And what you learn when you go to Japan and spend time there, even though, I mean, I was there for nine days and in fact went even a little bit early in advance of the press trip. And Jim, my partner, came with me um, so we could visit Kyoto and have a weekend to ourselves in Kyoto, which was just a remarkable experience. It's such a culturally, I mean, one of the most amazing places you'll ever be. There's just temples galore and food and kaiseki, which is the traditional Japanese course meal, kind of an omakase experience. That's a, a real specialty. I just urge everybody to check out Grand Seiko if you're not familiar with it, because people adore this brand. And they it, it really is the area where the mechanical pieces are made has this vibe of kind of Switzerland and Japan. Japan, and it's not a bad analogy because that's kind of they take the same care and there's so much effort put into communing with nature and then having that sort of rendering. It's, it's, it's interesting that that's that's what I wanted to ask you and I'll do it very quickly. You've been to a lot of Swiss watch factories and I, I guess this is your first Japanese watch factories. Did you notice anything different in how they approach watchmaking? Um. Well, in Shinshu, which is the main Seiko and kind of spring drive facility in Nagano Prefecture, where more of the quartz pieces are made, it had an older vibe. I mean, it felt like a much more like a factory. I mean, they they have their processes down pat. They've been doing this for decades. There's no, it, it felt very much like a very well-oiled machine there. And then the Sh Shizukuishi studio felt more of like a, a little atelier. You know, it has that sense. It's a smaller. It's uh, it's brand new. It opened in 2020. And it felt more of like some of the smaller ateliers that I've seen there. I mean, I, I went to visit Cartier about a year ago and Cartier's factory in Le Chat de Fond, and they've got a few facilities in Switzerland, incredibly robotic, incredibly like high tech. So 
physically she did not feel that way. I mean, they, sure, they have the CNC machines and the kind of up-to-date equipment that any watchmaker these days would have, but it felt much more like a handcrafted as opposed to a high-tech, you know, robotic facility. So, yeah, thank you for listening to me ramble on. It was it was wonderful, and I would urge anyone to try to visit Japan, and, and if you get to Morioka, schedule a visit to Grand Seiko Studio Shizukuishi. It's a beautiful place. All right, I'm going to try and go. <laughs> awesome. Well, good talking to you. Thanks for talking as always, Rob. And um, I'm sad about the story that we had to begin this talk with. So I think I'll go reread some of my old JCKs and see what my um, remarkable predecessor had to say about the magazine and the jewelry industry. And there's just so much to glean from her writings. So take care, everybody. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.